listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Ephesians chapter number four. So we're going to pick up. Again today, so we've been studying the book of Ephesians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Okay, he's in, he's in Roman incarceration, waiting on an opportunity to plead his case, if you will, to Caesar in Rome. And he had planted a church in the city of Ephesus and had actually spent a couple of years there in Ephesus ministering and uh, spending time with the people, building the church, encouraging the people before he continued on with his missionary journey. And so these are people that he knows pretty well, although it's been about five years since he has spent time in Ephesus. So, you know, if you go away from somewhere, you spend five years away, things change, right? I mean, some I've seen folks come into this building and they look around, they hadn't been around in a few years, and they go, wow, things are, are different in here. Because, you know, things change. People come in, people leave, people, it's just all, all, all the time it's changing. And so Paul knew the church. They knew him. They were very familiar with him. But some things had, you know, just happened naturally over the course of a half a decade. And so Paul is writing to people he knows, but he's also writing to folks that he doesn't know all of that well. So he spends the first half of this letter encouraging them, building this this group of people, building them on the basis of who they are as followers of Jesus. And I mean, he spends uh, well over half of the letter encouraging them about who they are in Christ. So this letter, this book, if we want to call it that, is written to believers, so my, my message or my, 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 my job in communicating this particular letter is a communication to believers, to followers of Jesus by faith. So maybe it is that you're not a follower of Jesus by faith. But if that's the case, just hold on because uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity to maybe choose to follow Jesus by faith today if that would be uh, something that you would do. But But this is a... a a letter to believers. It is a message to believers. And so he spent so much time building the case of who we are in Jesus. We were dead in our sin, but by God's grace, he has made us alive through the death and resurrection of Jesus who died in our place and for our sin and was raised victorious over death so that when we embrace Jesus by faith as our Savior, as our Lord, as the crucified and risen and living one, when we embrace him and we receive him by faith, we can be brought out of darkness into the light, brought from a position of God's enemy to a a place in his family. We, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. We're born into the family. And so Paul is just really building this case of who they are in Jesus. And then we get to chapter number four. And Paul makes a, a shift in his, in his desire for the letter. His desire now becomes to be what he said in the first verse of chapter number four. It's not on the screen. It's not in your uh, version. But he says, 
because of who you are in Christ, I want you to walk worthy of your calling. Now see, unfortunately, so many of us have grown up in church, and, and, and so often churches have either, well, most of them are unintentional, but sometimes it, it, it kind of sounds like they're being intentional about preaching a message that says, God loves you, but for, for you to be able to experience God's love, you have to do certain things. You have to act certain ways. You have to stop doing this and begin doing that so that you can experience God's love. Can I just tell you, that's the entire opposite of what the gospel says. The gospel says nothing about what you do or how you act or the places you do or don't go or the habits that you do or don't have. The gospel says that you and I are as rotten and as broken as can be. In fact, in chapter number two, it says of this particular letter, it says that we are dead in our sins. We are rebels against God. We don't want God. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want to hear from him. There's nothing that he has to offer that we want. But in God's grace, in God's love, he comes to us of his choice and draws the one that has no desire for him, that is acting every sort of way possible. And by God's grace and love, he draws us into relationship with him. Now, of course, we have to respond by faith. God's not going to bring us into the family kicking and screaming and fighting him. No, I don't want to be a part of your... No, that's not the way. But he draws us. And then we respond to his drawing and we just simply accept the free gift. And then once we're in the family, then he says, okay, now I want you to have a, a life of, 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 of reflection of this relationship that you have with me. Some of us... Uh, might have remembered, of course, it, I think it was a play before it was a movie, but the, back in the, uh, the late 70s, early 80s, y'all remember the little orphan Annie movie came out. The little red-headed girl and, and, and Daddy Warbucks was ball-headed. And, you know, he, it, so it's a good story. You know what happened. So, she, you know, she was orphaned. She was a problem kid, you know, but he brought her into the family. And she was a part of his family. But she was still so accustomed to the way that she was before she came into the family that it took a while for her to begin to live in the freedom of the family, for her to be able to recognize that I'm no longer an orphan. I no longer have to fend for myself. I no longer have to scratch and claw and, and do whatever I got to. No, I'm in the family now. Everything I need is provided, and I've got a, a, a new dad that loves me and wants to take care of me. So a lot of the funny of the movie is just, you know, her trying to figure out what it's like to be in the family. And you know, that's the way it is for Christians as well. I mean, we're, we're adopted into the family, but we're not too far from our sin. We're not too far from the way we were. And so we wrestle sometimes with, with how to live, how to be, how to act now that we are in Christ. And so we wrestle with the way we were 
in, a, in opposition to who we are now. So when Paul starts talking now in the last three chapters of this letter, when he starts talking about behavior, when he starts talking about our attitudes and actions and the things that we do and say and the, and the, the motivations behind what we do and say, it's not so that we can be a part of the family. It's because we are part of the family. God says, here's what I want you to live out. And, and, and automatically, when we, when we come to some of these things, we're, we're automatically going to say, well, I can't do that. I've tried to do that, and I can't. And, and here's what God's going to remind us. And, and maybe you weren't here for the first several sermons in this particular series, but I want to encourage you back to chapter number one where, where Paul says, and don't forget, now that you're in the family, God has provided all the spiritual blessings and benefits that you need. Everything you need to accomplish everything God has called you to do and to be, he's got that in abundance, and it's yours to access. All you have to do is to walk in the reality of what you have available because of who you are in Christ in the family. So while I know that you can't, and believe me, I can't either, because of who we are in Christ, we have those resources necessary to live out the things that God has called us to do. And how do we accomplish that? Not in our own strength, but through the Spirit that indwells us, the Spirit that leads us, equips us, and prepares us to do and to be everything God's called us to be. Now, chapter number 4, verse number 17. Here's what Paul says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Okay, so in chapter 4, he starts off by saying, I want you to walk worthy of your calling. I want, you to, I want you to live out who you are in Jesus. And the first step toward living out who we are in Jesus involves unity in the body. He says, first thing you got to recognize is that we're all together in this, and God has called us to be together, and so we're no longer two different things. Uh, we're one thing. And those two different things were Jew and Gentile, and they didn't get along real well because of a long history of division. And Paul's like, now look, we're one body now, so let's come together, let's lock arms, and let's pursue unity. And one of the ways that unity is going to work is through the gifts that God has given us, the gifts he's given you, he's given you, he's given me, and we're working together, and those gifts are being employed, and that's naturally going to cause us to be bound together because we're all doing different parts of the necessary activity of living out the gospel for those that are around. And we're, we're growing up in our walk. We're growing up pursuing maturity. As little baby Christians, we're all being called into maturity. And so now Paul says, so in that way toward maturity, I need you to stop living like the unbelievers live. That's what he says here when he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, 
we got to think, well, Paul's used Gentiles before when he was talking about those that were not Jews, but have trusted Jesus. Well, they're Gentiles by just nationality. They're not Jewish, so they're everybody else that's a Gentile. And so he was talking to those who had trusted Jesus. Now Paul's using this term Gentile to describe the unbelieving world, okay? The unbelieving population. And he says, you got to stop living like the world lives. And here's what he says. Because the Gentiles live a particular lifestyle based on who they are not in Christ. Look what he says. Stop living or stop walking as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Unbelievers' minds are futile. It means that they are useless in their thinking. They are purposeless. It's empty. It's warped. It is connected to a brokenness by sin. Now, don't, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not saying that everyone who's not a follower of Jesus can't be a superstar in the intellectual world. Oh, man, it's not saying they're not smart. It's not saying that, that if you're a, not a follower of Jesus that, that you can't create and build a business that makes millions and millions. Well, there's all kinds of folks that would distance themselves for Jesus and are doing amazing things financially in the world. It doesn't mean that you don't have the capability of doing things that will really impress a whole lot of people because there are tons of unbelievers who are impressing all kinds of folks. What Paul is saying is, is that because they are not connected to Christ, in their thinking, it is ultimately empty because they're going to discover that everything they're scratching and clawing and clamoring to have is going to end up being of no eternal value whatsoever. It's futile. Think about what the writer of Ecclesiastes, those that you have have been around church for a while, Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, it's in the poetry section, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Most folks think that it is Solomon. Solomon was the wisest, the richest, the most impressive king that Israel ever had. And yet he chose to disobey the wisdom that God gave him. And he says, I tried everything out there in the world. And I mean, I had the means by which to do any and everything imaginable. And I tried it. And you know what I discovered? Empty. Of no eternal value. Of no eternal worth. I discovered that, that I, can, I can try every and anything and it ends up amounting to nothing. That's what Paul's saying. Guys, don't, don't continue to live like unbelievers do because their thinking is empty. Their thinking, their whole processing of living life, it's of no purpose. It's valueless. It's futile. Not only that, he says they are, they are darkened in their understanding because their thinking is warped. Their understanding is dark. You, you try to have a conversation with an unbeliever, and, and you begin to talk about eternal things. You begin to talk about how that, uh, that you know what, I, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen in this world tomorrow, but here's what I know. 
I know that I'm secure in Christ, and just as sure as he was raised from the dead, so too I will be raised, just as sure as he did and said all the things that he did and said, and then he got up from the dead to prove that all those things he did and said were legitimate. Man, I don't have to worry about anything happening in this world. And a believer, an unbeliever will look at you and go, you really believe that? I mean, are you that weak-minded? They'll say that this belief that you have in a very real resurrected Jesus, I don't have time to go into it. But if the world was as fair about the eyewitness, actual documented testimony of people who saw Jesus alive from the dead and then paid for that confession with their life in very brutal ways. If the world was as honest about the documents that we have that absolutely document the resurrection as they were with any other historical document, we wouldn't get so many funny looks. Why is it that this denied so blatantly? Paul says, because their understanding is darkened. I mean, their, their mind is, is fe- what are they? They're broke. They're dead. They're darkened in their understanding. And because of that, they are alienated. Verse 18, they're alienated from the life of God. So they, they have like no connection to the God who saves us they may have a desire to talk about a higher power or you know i'm i'm a spiritual person because i I recognize there's something there in there's like a there's a need for something more than just the instinctual human feelings and lusts and desires so I, i consider myself a spiritual person well, I believe in a, in a, you know, I believe that there's some kind of something. But they're darkened because they have no connection. They're alienated from the life of God. You know why? Because they've never trusted Jesus. And, and the way, the truth, and the life is found by faith alone in Messiah, whose name is Jesus, who was born in Nazareth, and who lived a very real life, and who died a very real death at the hands of his own people and the Roman executioners, and who got up and was revealed on the third day that he was alive. But the world doesn't understand that. The unbelievers don't get it. So Paul says, look, don't continue to live like the unbelievers. Their thinking is warped. I mean, their understanding is darkened. They're alienated. They're on the outside of the life of God because of the ignorance that they have. They're ignorant to the things, the truth, because they've not embraced them, because they've turned them off and they've brushed them aside. They're ignorant, ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. I mean, you can... You can try and communicate, but their heart is just so hard. It's so closed off. Paul says, don't keep living like unbelievers because that has an empty arrival point. There's there's no plus in living like unbelievers. Not only that, because of their darkness, because of their warped thinking, because of their hard heart, They've become calloused, verse number 19. This callous means that they're outside of feeling, outside of conscience. 
It's like they're so dark, they're so opposed to who God is that they don't even, they don't even feel bad about it because they just, they don't get it. They don't understand it. They're blinded to it and they're calloused. They're desensitized in their thinking and have thus given themselves over up to sensuality. And what is this thing? Most of the time we think about sensuality, it goes into the more, you know, the seductive type thing. But actually the word sensuality just means like uh, uh, open season on whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. So this idea is that unbelievers have no clue, they have no desire, they're calloused, they're unconscionable about what they're doing, and they've given themselves over completely to just doing and being whatever they want to do. Sounds like a terrible way of living. Or if you don't know Jesus, it's like, do what I want when I want. It's total freedom. They've given themselves up to sensuality, and they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Meaning if they hear about it, if it sounds fun, if somebody's enjoying it, well, I want to try it. I mean, aren't aren't we in our society seeing folks participate in things now, and it's so normal now? And it used to be like so far off. I mean, it was just such an, an outlier thing. And you're just like, man, there was a time when you participated in that. You were considered, man, you were strange. But now those things are mainstream. I mean, it's just normal. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's your thing. Great. Why? Because in our darkened mind, in our futility, in, in, in our callousness, in our ignorance as unbelievers, we've just given ourselves over to those things, and we're greedy to practice any and everything that is available to be done. I think about what Paul wrote in chapter 2. I've already alluded to it. Chapter number 2, verse number 1, it says, you, talking about those who, who were a part of the world, but now have become followers of Jesus. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I mean, Paul says, that's what you used to be. Don't keep living like that now. Why? Because you're not one of them anymore. You're in Christ. You've been brought from death to life. You've been brought from darkness to light. You've been given new life. You've been given forgiveness and redemption and eternity. And you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And you're an inheritance. And you're going to receive an inheritance. And what you have need for in this life, God's provided for. Now, please, by all means, don't keep living like unbelievers because that's not what you you are anymore. He's not saying, do this so you can be a Christian. He's saying, because you're a follower of Jesus, because you are a Christian, walk that way. Live that way. 
And then this is what he says. So you're in Christ. Don't continue to live like an unbeliever. And then he goes on and says, verse 20, because this is not the way you learned Christ. This is not how you learn Christ. What, what, what are you talking about? I'm talking about in the futility of your unbelieving mind, in the, in the callousness, the licentiousness, the go and do and be. This is not the way that you've learned Christ. It's not about taking Christ and adding it to your life and then continuing to live on. That's one of the things that I'm constantly reminding the students in student ministry. Being a follower of Jesus is not about coming along and getting Jesus and putting him in your backpack of life and then living out your life knowing that I've got Jesus. And since I've got Jesus, that means I've got heaven. And since I've got heaven and it's secure in him, then I can just go and keep living my life on my own terms and do everything I was planning to do because now I've got Jesus. That's not the way it works. Unfortunately, that's how a lot of churches have presented salvation. Hey, would you like to receive Jesus? Yeah, what's that going to do for me? Well, I'll get you into heaven. Shoot you, I'll take Jesus. How do I get Jesus? Well, say these words. What's that? What's that word? Oh, I'll help you. I'll say them first, then you say them. And they say these words, and you, or, do you believe that Jesus died and rose? Yeah, I believe in that. Yeah, man. And that gets me into heaven? Yes, so you've received Jesus. Awesome. And they go on and live their life with Jesus in their backpack. If I have a need for something, if something crazy comes up in my life, a sickness or a, a problem, well, then what do I do? I take out Jesus, and I let Jesus handle this thing for me. Once he gets that done, thanks, Jesus, I put him back in my backpack, and I keep on living because I know when, when my time comes and I die and I get to the pearly gates to follow the, the joke the way it is. And when I get to the pearly gates and Peter's, I don't know why Peter's the one who's standing there. But at any rate, that's the way the joke goes. When he says, you want to come in? I go, well, hold on. I got Jesus in my backpack. Here we go. Oh, well, come on in. That's not how it works, people. That's not salvation. Paul says, that's not how you learned Christ. That's not how you came to understand the truth that is in Jesus. Verse number 21. Assuming, however, that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, Paul's been away from Ephesus for five years. And so he's like, that's, that's not how you learned Christ. Uh, I'm assuming that that's how they're still teaching Christ in Ephesus. And I've been gone about a half a decade. I'm assuming that's how you learned him. You didn't learn to come along and pick up Jesus and add him to your life. No, here's what you learned. You learned, verse number 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through dece uh, deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says, I'm assuming that you learn that salvation is about understanding that, that God loves you despite your sin. God loves you and has made salvation and forgiveness available for you. And, and that salvation and forgiveness is available by faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is recognizing what I am 
as a sinner, dead in trespasses and sins and, and living out the course of, the, of the, the prince of the power of this air and fulfilling all the desires of the body of the mind. I recognize because God turns the light on and I go, oh man, I'm a sinner. What do I do? Faith in Jesus. And by trusting Jesus, I recognize that what I'm doing is I'm setting aside the old man, kind of like I take off a dirty shirt. You work in the yard all day long. All day long, you sweat, you get dirt all over it. There's no denying that the shirt is dirty. You might not recognize it. You might not recognize how dirty, stinky, filthy you are, but then you come into contact with your spouse, and you come in the door, and you go, hey, honey, and you go to hug on her, and she goes, I don't think so. She puts up her hand, and you're like, what? Is there something wrong? And she says, no, you're filthy. You stink, and you go, I do? And then you look down, and you go, oh, wow. I I didn't realize it until she told me that. Same way with Jesus. I didn't realize the shape I was in. I actually thought I was doing pretty good. I was living a a good life. I was making a lot of money. People liked me, and, and, and things were happening in my life, and things were trucking. And then all of a sudden, I came into contact with Jesus, and Jesus goes, whoa, 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 dude you're pretty nasty. And you go, I am? He goes, yeah, you are. Oh, oh, I am. What does your spouse say? Your spouse says, listen, I really want to, I really want to be up in that hug with you, okay? But here's what you're going to need to do. You're going to need to go take a shower. Now, hold on now. You're going to need to go take a shower. So you go take a shower. What does Jesus do? Jesus goes, oh, whoa, whoa. I really want to I really want to be up in that hug. But I need to clean you up first. And what Jesus what Jesus how, how are you going to clean me up? He goes, "See, I died on the cross. I shed my blood as a substitution sacrifice for you. I was buried and I was raised victorious. I've got the two I've got the stuff to clean you up, not just to wash you clean, but to make you new. Paul says, I'm I'm assuming that you learned when you came to faith in Jesus, you set aside the old man and put on the new man. I'm assuming that you didn't learn that you get Jesus by adding him to your life. I'm assuming that the folks I left in charge in Ephesus have taught you that when you come to faith in Jesus, you set aside who you used to be because you know that is broken. You know that is steeped in sin and there's no good thing that resides. And you set off the old you so that you might put on the new you created in righteousness and holiness made available by the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, when God created humanity, he made us, if you know Genesis, the Bible says that we were made in God's what? Image. Now, how that all works, none of us know. But we were made in God's image. But when sin came in, it broke God's image in us. Now, it's still there. 
And we still value the image of God in all humanity. That's the reason why life is important. Regardless of the color, regardless of the age, regardless of any other factor distance from me, life is sacred because life is created by God in his image. And it is ultimately valuable. And so that's why life is valuable. But the image of God is broken in us. What we experience in salvation is the renewal process of the image of God in us. He begins restoring. And and he gives us the promise that ultimately his image in us will ultimately be seen and visible. And oh man, I can't believe who you are now. It's experienced as a process. Now, you know how we know this? I'll give you how we know this. He's sitting back there in the sound booth. And he's got his arms folded and he's wondering whether or not I'm going to call him out. I am. Andy Rudd. You see, Andy Rudd, when I met him a couple of years ago, was a totally different guy. But through the process of just walking with God's people, he came to a place where he was like, you know what, I don't really think that what I did as a kid had a transformational impact on my life. And so he began trusting in, in Jesus in a very real way. And the guy I know now, Susie, he ain't perfect, right? I mean, let's just be honest. He ain't perfect, you know, he ain't. He still got his little quirks and things that pop up. But you know what? He's different today than he was when I first met him. And if you get to spending some time with Andy, and, 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 and the way to do that is he likes to, we like to eat. That's a good way to get to know. And so you start sitting down having meals with him. He'll begin to tell you about his life before I met him. And he says, man, you wouldn't even have wanted to be my friend back then. You know why? Because his mind was futile. His thinking was darkened. His soul and spirit was calloused, and he was just out for number one and greedy to experience whatever needs to be experienced to enjoy life to the full. And then he met Jesus. And coming to know Jesus says, oh, I need to, I need to get rid of that. That ain't who I am anymore. Take this off and put this, this new life on. You know, where do I get this new life? It's Jesus' life. It's his resurrected life given to you and me. Not because we deserve it, but because God loves us. And for what he's done for us, we put on this new life. And Paul's like, that's the life you need to be living. It would be inconsistent in your new duds, in your new life, to keep living like unbelievers do. That is not consistent. And I would think that when we were reading about the life of the unbeliever, maybe you were thinking, well, as a Christian, I'm not, I, hey, I'm not up the outside, you know, painting the town red. Man, I'm not, I, I ain't doing all that that I used to do. And Paul's like, I know. But there are some things that are still starting to pop up in your life that are connected to that old way. 
Now, see, if you know Jesus as saved, if you truly know Jesus, then you know that you're new. And you know that you want to live that out. But you also know that from time to time, given the right circumstances, the old you begins to pop out. I'll give you a for instance. You take a vacation and you go back to your old stomping grounds with some of your old buddies that you graduated high school with, or maybe you were in the military with, or maybe these are old college buddies that have some shared experiences, and they don't know Jesus as Savior. So their life is continuing to spiral in the direction it was going, but you do. And you realize that when you get around them, if you're not real careful, you start falling back into the way you used to talk. And uh, we were laughing about this. And yet, oh yeah, well, let's go on over there and see them. You know how easy it is to take off the new you and go rummaging in the dirty clothes and find that stinky shirt of the old. You know how easy it is to put that thing on not realizing how nasty it is, how inconsistent with who you are now is. Or maybe you're not like me. But if you're like me, you know how easy it is to fall back into the old way. And if you've lived as a follower of Jesus long enough, you know that if you take too many steps backwards, it just kind of becomes easy. Well, I'm already kind of back here. It just kind of becomes easy to turn around and just start walking the way you used to walk. If you're like me. If you're not like me, maybe you don't know what that's like. And so what Paul is saying is like, okay, I've spent a lot of time telling you who you are in Jesus. Now, God wants you to live that out. That, that's reasonable, right? You're a part of the family. I, I mean, you've got new life. It's his life in you. You've got all the things you need. So, so that God wants you to live this out in a practical way? Well, that's not strange. That's, that's pretty reasonable. But I know how easy it is for you to fall back into the old ways. And so he begins to identify some things about these folks that I don't think are too far off base to what we wrestle with. So if you know Jesus as your Savior today, God wants you to walk that out. God wants you to live that life, and he's given you everything you need to do it. And one of those things that you're going to need to do is recognize where your old man pops up. And let's just give you some for instances. He says in verse number 25, Therefore, because that's, that's what you were, what you are, you've set aside, you've put on, I even skipped. You're being renewed in your mind constantly through God's activity in your life. Now, therefore, because that's true, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Because you have put off the old man... You've put off all forms of falsehood. 
Oh, I have? Yep. And since you've put off falsehood, it would be inconsistent for you to continue to speak false things. Oh, I was doing that? Yep. Yeah, some of your old man was starting to pop up. Here's what he says. Stop talking falsely and begin speaking truth. So if you're in Christ, you need to take these off, put these on. Take off dishonesty, he says, and put on truthfulness. And then he gives the reason. Because we're, we're all one together. Now, maybe... Deception is not a problem for you. Or maybe you don't realize what deception looks like in all of its various forms. Chuck Swindoll helped me a lot in this particular section, helping me with some uh, good insight. Think about dishonesty in your life. It's outright deception. If you're a liar... If you're perpetually telling lies, Paul goes, stop that. You put that aside. That's not you. You're a truth teller because that's the life of God in your life. You're like, well, I'm not a liar. Well, do you do diplomatic hedging? What is, what is that? That's, that's looking like you are in agreement even though you're not in agreement because diplomatically it would be better for you to just not get into that with the person that you're talking to. I'll tell you how this kind of could come out. You're a sales rep and you're meeting with somebody who's a a big potential client and, and they offer for you to go and be and do something and it's completely against who you are in Christ. You know, hey, I'd love to talk about that, that you're here to sell me on. Let's do that at such and such place. Let's do this over a meal at such and such location. And you go, I can't do that because of who I am in Christ. And you don't say, well, you know what, sir, that's That's actually not something I can do. I'm a follower of Jesus, and and that wouldn't be consistent with my life. But you say, you know, as late as it is, we really probably ought to just, what have you just told them? If I had more time, I'd be all about it. You know what that is? Falsehood, deception. What about exaggerating the facts? Well, we never do that, do we? If you're like me, you do. You know, you're telling the story. And, and you want it to, to be exciting. And, and I'm a storyteller. And I know I've done, not intentionally I've done this. I tell the story and the tornado becomes a half a mile wide when I don't actually even know that it was a legitimate tornado. But you know, it makes the story better. It probably was a tornado, right? And if it was what it sounded like, I'm sure it was a half a mile wide. What is that? That's exaggerating the facts. That's telling something that's, well, maybe how you felt, but it's not necessarily true. What about half-truths? 
<laughs> Spouses. So, you know, where are you? <laughs> the text comes through. Um, I'm uptown. I mean, you're in the tool aisle at Lowe's about to spend on that thing that you don't want to tell her about. I'm uptown. I mean, you are uptown, right? <laughs> but you're not. That's a half truth. Really? Well, where at exactly? Just off of Cypress Gardens. <laughs> Stop it, he says. Plagiarism. Taking what is not yours and using it. Flattery. Hypocrisy. Habitual promise. Yours your says habitual promise keeping. If you're following along in the notes, that actually says habitual promise breaking. You make a promise and you don't fulfill on it. You know what that is? It's dishonest. It's the old you popping up. Paul's like, hey, you put that off. Put on truth because, hey, we're united together and truth builds. Deception tears down. I got to hurry. Verse number 26. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. He's not saying don't get angry. Get angry at the things that are unjust. Get angry at the things that are wrong. Too many Christians are just apathetic toward wrong because we say, well, I can't do anything about it. I just need to just do, I'll just live my life and don't worry about it. No, he says get angry about the things that are unrighteous and are ungodly and are bringing about destruction in the lives of people. That's why when we talk about this concept of ending a life before birth, that's why we get angry about that because that life is sacred. But he goes, don't sin in your anger though. We can get angry about injustice in our world, but don't sin in your anger. Let that anger be righteous, but don't let it become more than it needs to be. That's why he says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Deal with that anger. That anger pops up. This is wrong. This ain't right. We'll deal with it. You know what most of us don't do? We don't deal with it and we stay angry. And what does Satan do? Satan goes, all right. I got some anger. Oh, it doesn't matter why he was. He was angry because of this thing that was done that was unjust, and he's mad, but he didn't deal with it. Oh, yeah. And what does Satan do? He'll go, yeah, you're mad. Just hold on to that anger because before long, you'll begin to separate yourself from that person. You separate yourself from that person. I'll be able to fuel that fire, and I'll make it where you start to hate that person. And if you'll let me, I'll fuel that power, that, that fire. You'll hate them, and then you'll look for an opportunity to gouge them, to get them back, exercise justice on your own. Paul goes, whoa, whoa. That's the old you doing things the way you think it ought to be done. He goes, ah. Uh -uh. Let the righteousness of God cause you to see things for what they are, and that'll make you mad. But handle it. Deal with it. Address it in a Christ-honoring way. Talk about it. Come together on a way to meet it, but don't let it boil over into temper or to other sinful opportunities.
because anger multiplies. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor with his own hands so that may have something to share with anyone in need. You go, well, I'm not a thief. Do you ever waste time as an employee? That's stealing. You ever borrow from folks that, or from the the institution, and you go, I'm just going to borrow this for a little. That's taken without permission. And you're doing it, and you're going, well, I'm just trying to, to make something happen for me. And Paul's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's self-focus. You're taking for your own benefit. you got to quit that. Rather, set your mind to work hard so that you might be able to provide for us together for those that are uniquely in need at a particular time. That's old man stuff. Don't continue to live like that. That's the old man. Verse number 29. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. He says, take off rotten speech. Take off rotten speech so that you can put on words that build. I'm not going to spend any time talking about rotten speech. You know why? Because you and I both know whatever that is that comes out of our mouth that is not edifying and building up, whether it's cursing or crudeness or gossip or some of the other things that are going to be listed here in a minute. We know what that is. And Paul goes, that's old you talk. And you got to put that aside so that your words are building, edifying, using your tongue to build the body. And then verse 30 and 31, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for that day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Paul says, take off what causes the Holy Spirit to be grieved in your life. Parents, Have you ever been grieved by the actions of a child? Of course you have. Does that mean you don't love them? Of course it doesn't. But when your children do things that are harmful to themselves, harmful to their testimony, their reputation, it grieves you. You hurt for them. Paul says you need to take off the things that grieve the Holy Spirit, that break his heart. Here's what they are. Bitterness. It's an attitude that harbors resentment and rejects reconciliation. Wrath. It is a deep-seated rage that fails to subside. Anger. It's an uncontrollable temper with explosive outburst. Clamor. It's loud outcries that disrupt peace and cause confusion. Slander. It's destroying the reputation of another through gossip. Malice. It's harming others through intentional acts of wisdom. You say, we do that? Yeah, we do. And it smells like the old man. And it looks like the old woman. Paul goes, you got to take that off. Any of those terms resonate with you? Things that pop up from the old you? Paul says, you need to take them. You need to say, because we've already set that aside. To receive Jesus. And here's what you need to put on. You need to put on kindness. Be kind to one another. Tenderheartedness and forgiving one another. Why? Because God through Christ 
has forgiven you. You put on what looks like Jesus, kindness, acting graciously and mercifully toward others, just as God has with us. Tenderheartedness, offering care and comfort to those in need, just as the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us as our helper. Forgiveness, extending reconciliation to those who have offended or harmed us, just as Christ has forgiven us. We take off those things that destroy and break the heart of God in our life because we're his children, because of who we are in Christ. And he says, put that aside and start exercising kindness and graciousness and forgiveness because that looks like Jesus. So Paul's talking about our behavior, our actions, our attitudes, not in order to be a part of the family, but because we're in the family. Church, let me ask you this. Where is the old man popping up in your life? The, ad, the, the action that we take today is, wow, God, I didn't realize I'd gone into the closet and had put that dirty shirt on again because falsehood's living in my life. Anger that stays and, and fuels is in my life. Wow, the, the stuff I'm saying... That's the old man. I don't, God, the, the, the things that are in my life, I've been bitter and wrathful and I'm a clamor and I'm saying stuff and I'm doing it online. And God, I just can't believe it. that just sounds and looks more like the old man. Our action today is simple. Father, I've been walking like an unbeliever and that's not who I am. I want to confess that as sin. God, I want you to. Re- to forgive me and restore me and encourage me. And I want you to set my feet back on the path that your son has set before. I want, I want to walk like who I am. And God, I want to start that today. If that's who you are, which I can't imagine, if you're like me, that there's not something we don't recognize of the old man in us, then I would encourage you to confess it, to receive forgiveness for it, And walk out of this building determined to be the new you. That you are in Christ by faith. If you're like me, this is going to be something that you have to do on almost a daily basis. The reason I say almost daily is because most often it's more often. But that's okay. We're maturing, we're growing, we're being renewed, and together, that's the direction we need to be following. Living out the life that we have in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your son. God, we thank you for your your instruction to us. We're so thankful that when we come to passages like this that you don't say when you live like you used to be, you're out of the family. Whoa, we are so glad you don't say that. We'd be out of the family just as fast as we got in. We're so thankful that you come alongside us as a good father and you say, now look, you've fallen back on the way you used to be. That's, that's not how we do things in my family. Here's how we do it in my family, and, and, and I will give you the ability to do it if you'll just walk it out. So, Father, I pray you'll give us courage to confess our sin, to be honest about the things we've let creep back in, allow you to deal with it, and to move forward in the new us. 
created in your righteousness and your holiness by the death and resurrection of your son. We thank you, Father, that today salvation is available to any who will recognize their unworthiness, their brokenness, and the new life that is available by faith in Jesus. God, I pray that you would draw that one who still needs to come to you. Let them see themselves for who they are, but let them see you for who you are. Ready and willing to forgive, to make new, bring into the family. May that be their desire. We love you. We trust you. For it's in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, our risen Lord, our returning King. It's in His name that all of Oasis Church says, Amen. His name.